Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast, sponsored by Global Scholars. I'm your host, Jordan Plank. Joining me are Dr. Stan Wallace and Dr. J.P. Moreland. Welcome, gentlemen. It's good to see you. Good to see you, too. You, too. In this episode 24 of the Thinking Christianly podcast, we're going to talk about skepticism and the problem of the criterion. And if that sounds like really academic language, let me tell you, this is by far the most helpful thing I have learned from philosophy in the past probably five years, which is saying quite a bit because I've learned a lot. (laughs) This topic in particular has helped me in so many different conversations and in so many ways that it just it, it just seems to leak into everything. So I'm really excited listeners and especially if you happen to be a person who has a lot of conversations with young people, you are going to find this information so helpful and and really a way to get to the next level of your conversations and get closer to the heart of issues with people you are in these dialogues with. So I I want to go ahead and get us started with kind of why it seems that doubt and skepticism seem to be cultural virtues these days. Is that something you've noticed? Well, I'm going to start off just by observing that I'm skeptical. We've been at this two years. Are you sure this is number 24? You know, now I'm not. Now I'm not. I'm not 100 percent sure. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. We've been on this 20, 24, uh, 24 episodes. Uh, that's great. Thanks for reminding us. Um, I do find that in most conversations I have, there's this underlying skepticism, and sometimes it comes out uh, in in more overt ways, and sometimes less. But uh, you know, the way I hear it often is. You know, I'll make a, a statement of something that I believe to be true, especially uh, if I'm talking about spiritual matters, the existence of God, the deity of Christ, the resurrection, the authority of Scripture, what have you. And they'll, they'll often say, well, are you, are, are you sure? You know, might you be wrong about that? And of course, I say, well, I, I, yeah, I could be wrong about that. Sure. There's certainly not 100% proof of that, but I, I, I think I'm think I'm right. And they say, well, no, you can't be right. You can't, you can't know it's true because uh, you'd have to have, have certainty. And I know we'll get into that because it's the main point of this problem of the criterion. But uh, yeah, that's, it seems to be so widespread. It's almost universal these <laughs> days. I don't know, JP, if those are the kind of conversations you have. Just this last week, I was having a conversation with an unbeliever about whether there was life after death. And he said, well, you know, nobody can know for sure about any of this. And uh, I said to him, why would you think that in order to know something, you've got to be sure about it? And he really was startled by the question, because he'd never entertained the possibility that you could, what philosophers call, defeasibly know something. That means you could know something and admit that you might be mistaken. You don't know it for sure, but you could still know it. The cultural assumption that in order to know something, you've got to be completely sure of it, 100%, is a huge mistake. You can trace it actually back to Descartes. But this is what people assume. I think there's another reason why there's so much skepticism today, and that's that we've absorbed the view that to doubt something is to be smart, but to believe something is to be gullible. Hmm. 
But but that's actually a, a terrible approach to life. And here's why. As knowers, we have two duties, two rational duties as knowing people. The first duty is to know as many truths as possible between now and the time I pass away. Now, if that was my only duty, the best way to do that would be to just believe every single thing I ever hear, and I would end up knowing more truths than I would if I adopted any other approach. The problem would be I'd also believe a lot of falsehoods. Mm -hmm. The other duty is to have as few falsehoods in my belief system as possible. And the best way to go about that would be to just doubt everything that everybody tells me from now on. Sure. Now, a lot of people, because they've been let down by authority or their parents weren't who they said they were and so on, have adopted that second approach. And they just think that it's smarter to be safe and not not stick your neck out there. So they just doubt everything so they can't get hurt. Mm-hmm. The problem with that is that you can be harmed as much by refusing to believe a truth. The, the, you, your plane is leaving out of gate three and you just refuse to believe that. Well, that's you're not going to get home. Mm-hmm. So the best approach is to try to find a middle ground where you will believe as many truths as possible and not have as many falsehoods as you can and honor both of those. And so there's no place of priority to to believing or doubting. You want to approach life with an openness to, to listen and try to assess the evidence for any claim. And that would allow you to probably have the best overall combination of more truths and fewer falsehoods than any other approach, but our culture adopts the, I'll just out everything. And they think that that's safe, but it really isn't because they're going to lose out on a lot of truths that could help them in life. Mm, That's really good. So helpful, JP, especially noticing the difference between feeling a sense of doubt and using it as a method versus approaching all of life as a skeptic. Yes. That seems to be a real issue. And when we're encountering these conversations with people like the one that you had about life after death, it really is a very startling realization. And sometimes people have never considered that that could be possible. Well, and that's so why this issue about certainty and the issue about doubting everything, and that's the safest approach and the, mo- the smartest approach to go are just completely bogus. They they carry no weight at all. There are other forms of skepticism I think we should mention very briefly. I'll mention one. It's called iterative skepticism. Hmm. And that's where a person, every time you say something, they just say, well, how do you know that? So you answer that. Then they say, well, how do you know that? I was on an elevator with a guy years ago, and he asked me a question. Do you believe in such and such? Yes. Well, how do you know it's right? So I gave an answer. And he said, well, how do you know that's right? So I I gave him an answer. I was assuming he was sincere. This went on about four or five times. And I realized 
that he was an iterative skeptic, which means that he's a, he's a parrot. Mm -hmm. He was not a real participant in the quest for truth. He was not a real member of the community of people who would want to know what the truth is. He was just a person who wanted to be lazy and say, well, how do you know that? How do you know that? So he wasn't really talking and discussing. He was playing a game. And so I eventually said to him after he did this about the fifth or sixth time, well, how do you know that? I stopped and I said, well, how do you know that that's a relevant question? Uh, what would make you think it is? Mm -hmm. And I, what I did is I just shifted it back to him that he had a burden now to answer why he thought that that question, how do you know that, was a, was a reasonable question. And so the point is that these kinds of people are not really interested in knowing what's real and what's true. So they can literally be dismissed. And maybe the best thing to say would be, listen, I think that you're just playing a game. I could be wrong, but I'll be honest with you. I've, my time is very precious to me. And, uh, you come back and see me when you're really ready to listen uh, and have and be a real disputant or con conversant in our, our dialogue here. So that iterative skeptic should be just dismissed graciously. That's a really great response to that kind of engagement. I think I maybe have had that very same man in my classes before. Mm -hmm. but, you know, maybe at church, I think maybe it's the very same person. It has to be because they're just, it's gotta be. Like this, right? That's right? Yes, that's yeah. right. And it's so frustrating and it does really fluster even, even my most brilliant friends. It's very, it's very aggravating. And, you know, they try their best to answer that question. And JP, I feel like I would have given up at maybe two because that's about how far down any <laughs> rabbit trail I can go. So hard and so easy to get angry or feel overwhelmed by that kind of line of questioning. And if I may, uh, to close out this, this part of our time, there, there are actually uh, three other related forms of skepticism that I'd like to throw on the table. First is dogmatic skepticism. A dogmatic skeptic says that we can't know anything, and I know that we can't know anything. Now, there actually are people who say, I, I know that we can't know anything at all. The obvious problem with that is that it's self-refuting because the skeptic says he knows that none of us can know anything, but that is itself a knowledge claim that he knows to be true. So that's a pretty silly view. The other view is, is, is called mitigated or uh, you might say mild skepticism. And the mild skeptic says, I don't believe we can know anything, but I'm not sure about that. So he says, you tell me something you think you know, and he puts the burden of proof on the person who's making a knowledge claim instead of him realizing we have an equal burden of proof, because if he doesn't believe it, he needs to tell me why he doesn't, every bit as much as I need to tell him why I do. So the attenuated skeptic will often say, I don't know that we don't know anything, but I, I, I don't think we do, and I've never come across anything that, that we know. Uh, the best thing uh, they, they will do is to shift the burden of proof to the person who claims to know something, and no one should step up on that. And, and I know that uh, Stan will pick that up later again on the problem of the criterion. The third type of skeptic is what you might call 
limited skepticism. Now, what, what this means is that the skeptic holds to skepticism in a certain area of life, like in ethical or religious claims, as Stan pointed out earlier. But when it comes to our senses or uh, scientific claims, they believe we can know things there. So their skepticism is not across the board. It's kind of kept in certain areas of claims, but not other areas of claims. Now, now the problem with this is that in the area where they're skeptics, it's very difficult for them to keep that skepticism well-behaved in just that area without it spilling over into other areas. So, for example, a person says, well, the reason I don't believe religious claims or moral claims, but I do believe scientific claims, is that you can test those with your senses, but you can't test a moral claim with your senses. Well, the problem, of course, is, well, how do you know that you have to be able to test something with your senses or with the scientific methods before you can know it? And if they have a reason for that, well, here's why I hold that. It's not going to be a scientific reason, and it's not going to be a reason that you could test with your senses. And so that opens up the possibility that there might be other things you could know without being able to test them scientifically or with your senses, because they apparently think the statement, you can't know something without using your senses or science, is something that he knows without using his senses or science. So that's an example of how it's difficult to keep that skepticism in religion and ethics without it spilling over into his entire intellectual landscape. Really well said, JP. I want to make a meta-level observation because this is such a great illustration of something we talk about a lot. We often encounter skeptics, and they pose these type of objections. And uh, in your case, you're not in the least bit flustered by those. Um, Others often are. And I think that I know the reason is, the difference is, that you have a broad enough understanding of where these ideas come from, and therefore, some of the problems with these ideas that it's it's not it's not new. It's not like somebody has said, "Well, how do you how do you know if you can't be certain?" It's, a, it's not like the first time you've ever heard that. You you thought a little bit about this, and actually, in the conversation, you've mentioned Descartes. These ideas are really from him. That's another example of how ideas matter, and ideas that are offered maybe centuries ago still permeate our conversations and our ways of thinking. And in this case, two wrong ideas. You know, he, first of all, accepted the skeptic's burden of proof before he could say he can know something. And you're observing that, well, no, why would we assume assume that? Yes. And then secondly, after accepting that burden of proof, he determined that he could only meet the burden of proof by showing certainty in something to say he knows it. Again, you're suggesting why should we believe that's the case? But again, it's because of just your familiarity with the history of ideas and the conversation. And it's the point we're trying to make in this 
podcast, name of the name of it, Thinking Christianly, learning to think about these things at a little bit more than a soundbite level that we get in our culture, so that when we do encounter these kind of skeptical objections, it's not the first time we've ever heard of them. And we've got some sense of where they come from and the grounding of them and how we might respond. Stan, what you just said is worth a lot. And I'll tell you why. Dallas Willard, bless his soul, he made the point in in, in one of his books that the general public and Christians believe that there's something that the academics have discovered That if ordinary lay people knew what it was, they would realize that Christianity is foolish and unbelievable. It's irrational. They're just, they just don't know what those academics know. And uh, it's probably something that we've discovered now that we're, uh, you know, contemporary people. And uh, we know better now that the ancients didn't know. Well, Mm -hmm. one problem with that, as you pointed out, is that these ideas go all the way back. Some of them go all the way back to Plato and and the ancient Greek skeptics uh, after the time of Jesus. And then Descartes. Before the time of Jesus. And before the time of Jesus. Yes. So uh, it's it's important to know that there hasn't been anything anybody's discovered. There are Christians in all these academic fields who know that subject as well as others, and they're solid believers who don't think there's any problem with their Christianity in economics or physics or whatever. Right. And knowledge of, like you said, of just, you know, having some people around that say, well, wait a minute, you know, we've been dealing with that particular thing for five centuries. And here was the problem back then. And it hadn't changed. This right. isn't something new. Powerful point, Stan. Powerful. Well, it just illustrates why we're trying to do this podcast to get these ideas in the conversation so that they're not new the next time they come up in somebody's you know, discussion with somebody over coffee. Absolutely. And they will come up. It's just so much in the water right now. And I'd like to take this moment for listeners. We're talking about skepticism in others and identifying it in others. But as we're thinking about this, you know, we're children of the enlightenment too. So take a moment, maybe pause the podcast and think about ways that you might be skeptical in areas that don't really make sense, that maybe you too are committing some of these fallacies of skepticism and really limiting your ability to know the truth. And I love the way JP put it earlier, the quest for truth. A wrong use of skepticism is really going to limit your ability to see the landscape for what it is. So take a moment, kind of reflect and see if there are places where you yourself and not just the people you're having conversations with might have accidentally adopted some of these skeptical ideas. And I want to pick up on another point you made, Jordan, that's important, and it's the other type of skepticism, the heuristic use of skepticism, where one says, I'm just going to be skeptical as a as a method to really test this idea, to look at it in every way, to question the assumptions, to question maybe the ways I have to justify that is something I should believe, and use that to help me have a stronger belief, perhaps, or perhaps to give the belief up if I find that actually I don't have good reasons. But it's it's more of a tool than a posture. And that's helpful. Now, there are extremes where you can, you know, use that iteratively, and then it becomes an iterative version. But I think as a tool, skepticism can be helpful in that way, uh, limited as it is. Well, this is this is such an important point. 
because uh, heuristic skepticism is not iterative, but it can, as you pointed out, slide over into that. But heuristic skepticism is taking something that you know, or you take yourself to know, and putting hard questions to it to see if it stands up, or maybe to learn more about how it is we know these things. And so, for example, uh, in an area I teach, uh, knowledge of other minds, I could ask myself, how do I know that, Stan, you're conscious? And how do I know uh, what kind of conscious states? Can you feel pain uh, or do you have thoughts? Maybe you only have sensations. Now, I do know that you're conscious <laughs> and I do know that you feel pain and I do know you think. But so the question isn't to put that up for grabs. Right. The question is a method for me to get out. Can I learn more about how it is I know this uh, or what is my basis for it if I need one? Is it just obvious or what? So I believe that, that can be, that's helpful in interpreting scripture. Mm -hmm. uh, this is what the text says, but I want to see if I can find out why I'm grounded in, in thinking that. So very, very, very important, legitimate form of skepticism mm -hmm. of, as opposed to the others. And the unfortunate term we often use for that is playing devil's advocate, but uh you know, it, it, that in a sense is what it is. You're trying to poke holes, you're trying to tear down, you're trying to criticize, but ultimately for an, an, an end of having a better sense of why I believe what I believe. Right. We will return to the show in just a moment, but first a word from our sponsor. Do you have a child, relative, or friend preparing for or attending college? What they need most are Christian professors who can help them learn to love God with their hearts and minds during these impressionable years. Global Scholars equips Christian professors to be there for them and walk with them during their years in college. Please visit www.global-scholars.org to learn how you can help equip Christian professors to show Christ's love on a campus near you and around the world. Please also check out Stan's other podcast, College Faith. While this podcast is focused on the ideas prevalent in our culture, including our universities, the College Faith podcast is more focused on the practical issues of thriving in college as a Christian. Students, as well as parents of students and soon-to-be students, will enjoy hearing from the guests Stan has on the show. Visit collegefaith.net or download episodes on your favorite podcast platform. And now back to thinking Christianly. I think that leads us really nicely into the problem of the criterion. Stan, would you kind of tee us up for that? What is the problem of the criterion? Yeah, sure. JP started us in the conversation earlier talking about, you know, we want to know things that are true and, and believe those and not believe things that are false. But, you know, how, how do we know? How do we determine? if this is something I should believe, if this is something that is true or not. And there are, besides skepticism, two approaches. And one is the Methodist approach. It has nothing to do with the Wesleys, but it's the, the idea of, well, I've got to have certain criteria that I can use to know why I know something is true. The other approach is says, no, there are just some things I know. There's just some particular pieces of knowledge I already have. And I really can start with those as paradigm cases of knowledge. And from that, develop a more robust sense of, of, of why I can justify knowing things. 
And uh, the analogy that helps me is the analogy of taking a bushel of apples and trying to sort them into good apples and bad apples. You know, you could start with, okay, I've got to got to develop a criteria that tells me what's good and what's bad. But that's not how we do it. We usually pick out one of the apples that's just a really nice, good, healthy apple. It's an exemplar of a good apple. And we set it over here on this side. Then we get one that clearly is not a good apple. It's got warm holes in it and it's rotten. And okay, this is an exemplar of a bad apple. So this over here. Well, now we've got paradigm cases of good and bad apples. And we can take all the rest and just compare them to either side. And it, it's more over on the you know, good apple side, put it over there. Or it's more of a bad apple, put it over there. But see, we're starting with those things that are clear cases of knowledge. This is clearly a good apple, clearly a bad apple. And from that, then we can develop some sense of how the rest of the apples that are not the clear cases should be sorted. So that's the idea. You get before you clear cases of knowledge in a particularist approach. And then from that, then you can sort other beliefs accordingly, which seems to be the way we come at decisions anyway. So it just puts a name to it and it avoids the problems of the other view, the Methodist view, which JPL let you address that if you want to, but there are, I think, some pretty significant problems with that approach to knowledge. Well, and that, and the particularist approach, as Stan said, not only seems to comport with the way that we actually gain knowledge, but it avoids horrible problems that the Methodist approach has, as Stan said. So again, the Methodist says that before you can know anything, you have to know how you know it. So if you make a knowledge claim, somebody can say, well, well how do you know that? And you have to be able to answer that claim before you are, can ju be justified in saying there's an apple on, on the chair or that object is colored yellow or whatever it might be. The problem is that if you have to know how you know something before you can know anything, well, then the question of how you know something, like you might say, well, I know something because it, it's clear to my five senses. You would have to know how you know that criterion is a good criterion. Because uh, uh, John Locke, for example, held to that criterion. Uh, he had a sixth sense, and that was an internal sense of your own consciousness. But Descartes had a completely different criterion for knowledge. He thought that to know something, the thing that you know has got to be very clear before your mind, and you, it has to be distinct from other things. And so the problem then would be, well, you know, you just said how we, you know things, but since there are a lot of different views of how we know things, how do you know that your view of how we know things is correct? And you see that this goes to a, a vicious infinite regress. You know, we might want to stop for our listeners and, and define that term. An infinite regress is one that just keeps getting pushed one step back and you never get to an ultimate answer. In other words, you've got a criterion for how you know, but then somebody asks, well, how do you know that criterion is the right one? Well, now I have to have a criterion for my criterion, which just pushes it back one level. Now I have to have a criterion for my criterion for my criterion. And so it goes. And you never get to a point where you have a, a starting point. You can never actually get to answer, I know something, because you can never give an ultimate level criterion. And that's the problem you're addressing of an infinite regress or a vicious infinite regress. 
Yes, and that and that problem makes the Methodist position untenable. Right. Because as Stan says, it keeps on going forever without being able to stop with something you just plain know. The other problem with it is that it assumes that because I have to answer that question, the burden of proof must be on the person who's claiming to know rather than on the skeptic. Now, let me explain that. You make a knowledge claim. I know that torturing little babies for the fun of it is wrong. And the skeptic says, well, isn't it possible that you're mistaken? I mean, there are other people who don't accept that view. and, And haven't you had moral beliefs in the past where you've revised them because you recognized you you were mistaken. So uh, isn't it possible that you're mistaken about the claim that torturing babies for fun is wrong? And of course, I would have to say, well, yes. Well, it's possible that I'm mistaken. Well, then the skeptic says, you can't know that if it's possible that you're mistaken, because to know means you've got to be 100% certain. And that's where the certainty problem creeps in and pollutes the whole enterprise of knowing. The particularist doesn't bite on that burden of proof that I've got to be I've got to be able to answer how I know something before I could know it because I might be mistaken. It's possible that I'm mistaken. And the particularist says we we don't start knowing as human beings, with with a general criterion for how we know things. We start with particular cases of things we know, as Stan called them, exemplars or paradigm cases. For example, I know that I had coffee this morning. I know that necessarily two and two are four. I know that if X is taller than Y and Y is taller than Z, then X is taller than Z. I know that that chair in my living room is red. Uh, I I know that God spoke to me the other day and gave me guidance. And we could multiply this in math or what have you. The skeptic will say, well, isn't it possible that you're mistaken about all of the things you just said you know? And the particularist will say, yes, it is possible that I'm mistaken. Well, then the skeptic will say, then you can't know that. But the particularist will say, from the fact that it's possible that I'm mistaken, it doesn't follow that I have any good reason to think I actually am mistaken. And until you can give me a good reason for thinking that in this case, I actually am mistaken, about the claim that torturing little babies for the fun of it is wrong, the mere possibility that I might be mistaken doesn't make any difference to me because I do know that that's wrong after all. And so what the particularist is assuming is that knowledge is a true belief plus adequate reasons, not certifying reasons, but adequate reasons. And to know something is consistent with admitting that it's possible that you're mistaken, 
But so far, you have no good reason to think you are. There's a passage in Ephesians where Paul says, okay, this I want you to know with certainty. Now, that presupposes that you could know things without certainty. Uh, if I said, I would like hamburgers with pickles. Well, I wouldn't say with pickles if having a hamburger just in, just was including pickles. It would be redundant. I must be assuming that it's possible to have a hamburger without pickles, and I want to add pickles in this case. Same with knowing. If I say this, I want you to know with certainty, that assumes that you could know things without being 100% sure. Uh, and so you can grow in the strength of your knowledge the more you learn. Doesn't mean you didn't know to begin with. It just meant you knew you had adequate reasons, but now you've got more adequate reasons. Now you might say, well, how do you know what are adequate reasons? Well, but there you, you that's another, that's trying to make me a Methodist. I'm going to say, well, I don't have a general criterion for adequate reasons. Let's take a case. So you have a case for me. And then I might be able to state that case, or maybe I'll say, well, I don't think I need to be able to state what an adequate reason is because I just know in that case I have it. Why do you think I don't? So that's how that would go. It's really helpful. Let me, from what you've said, make one more observation and another reason that for me, Methodism is a non-starter. If you start with Methodism, you actually end up either a skeptic or a particularist. If you continue to push for a criterion in your method and you never get to one, you are a skeptic because you can never get to a grounding or an adequate criterion that grounds all the other criteria that you have that you think are you know what you need. So if, if if in fact you keep going down the rabbit hole, you have to be a skeptic because you can never answer your question, well, how do you know? On the other hand, most Methodists finally get to a point where they say, well, I just know this is the right criterion. Well, at that point, she's become a particularist. She's claimed a specific piece of knowledge that doesn't have as it's grounding some criterion, how she knows it, she just knows that this is the right criterion to use so that I can actually claim this is true. Well, at that point, I say, yeah, you're really somebody who agrees with my position that we do have certain things we know to be the case. And that's where we start our conversation about what's true. So I've just never felt the force of Methodism at all because it really can't be a sustained way to approach knowledge, even though it's the way most people in our current milieu, approach knowledge. And uh, and I think that's worth reflecting on because that sometimes is what helps us get to those pieces of knowledge that we reflect on. Yeah, this is kind of the way things actually are. <laughs> yes, and Jordan, another thing that's important about what Stan said is that if you're a particularist, it doesn't mean that you have no room for criteria mm -hmm. or you don't think it's ever appropriate to, to tell you somebody how you know something. But it goes like this. Let's just take let's take moral claims. A particularist is going to start with something that he knows to be true and something right and he knows to be wrong. So he'll say, look, I know that torturing little babies for the fun of it is wrong. I also know that developing the virtues of honesty and kindness are right. They're virtues. They're, they're what I should do. 
Now, I know these things without having a clue how I know them. I just do. But then somebody might bring up a case that's kind of a borderline case. Well, if you've got a person in the hospital and and they're sick and they're going to die soon, do you think it would be morally permissible to pull the plug? And so uh, and there are borderline cases with raising kids. I mean, you know, they did something right, but there was this part of it that was that was wrong. And so should I praise them or should I discipline them? And so what the particularist would say, well, you start with clear cases of, of what we know to be right and wrong. And then we, we then we look at them more carefully to see if there was a characteristic of the or, or a criterion that is consistent with those cases that I could tentatively toss out there. And so suppose that you develop a criterion uh, that is consistent with what you knew to be right. Now, remember, you know the criterion is true because you know that you already knew that these particular cases were right. It's not that you know they're right because you know the criterion is true. It's the other way around. But now, because this criterion you formulated seems to be consistent with all the the things that you do know morally, you can take that and say, let me now apply that to borderline cases. And so that would be the role that a criteria would play for the particularist. Well said. Thanks for that uh, clarification or nuance. I want to note something here really quick for the listeners. Early in this conversation, JP brought up parents. And that might seem like a a strange thing, you know, if if your parents weren't good. This is where that comes in. So when you're talking about particularism and you're talking about exemplars, you know, a child's earliest exemplars are their parents. And this works in the spiritual life too. You know, our, our earliest exemplars in our faith are often very, very impactful on what we see as as the good Christian walk. If we happen to have someone, if God has given us the grace of someone really wonderful to emulate a really great exemplar, that gives us a way to go after something because we've got an example of the good. And then we can contrast that person with an example of bad or evil. And it is so helpful to see that because then you can start to make sense of the way that someone who hasn't had those examples might go wrong and might tend to err in skepticism or get stuck in the vicious cycle of Methodism. It might be because their early examples just weren't adequate. They weren't exemplars and that can lead them down these other paths. That's not always true, but I have found that to be often the case that if their early spiritual or uh, paternal exemplars were not great, it's going to make a real difference in how they understand the world, and especially how they relate to God. That is so important, and uh, thank you for bringing that up, which really just reinforces how important these podcasts are to to things as practical as parenting. It really is, Mm -hmm. because you want to be the best tutor for your kids you could possibly be, and we're all inadequate, but we have to do our best. And that's, that's why continuing to be a lifelong learner matters for so many things in life. 
Let me zoom out to the big picture for a minute and situate this conversation a little bit. There's a highest level taxonomy of conversations in philosophy. I found when I've talked to people about uh, issues in philosophy, this has been a helpful set of code hooks to hang things on. The big three categories are questions about what's real, what we can know or be justified to claim we know, and what's good or what we should do. We've spent a lot of our earlier podcasts in discussions of what is real. Is there a soul? Uh, are there objective values? Does God exist? Those type of things. Those are questions in metaphysics. And these aren't airtight compartments. They, they, they do have connections, but we've shifted, shifted here to talking more about issues in epistemology, how we know or how we can be justified to claim we know something. And then JP has just mentioned that it then ties into ethics. How should we live? What should we do? How should we parent in this case? And so they're all three always tied together, but they are distinct areas. And sometimes having that taxonomy just helps to locate conversations and what we're talking about. And sometimes it alleviates confusions. And JP, you might be able to, to, to make some comments on this specifically, uh, just in terms of we're talking about how we know, but that does relate to what those things are we know, whether they are propositions or values or what have you. Well, yes, I, I think. Uh, keeping this taxonomy clearly in mind helps you not move from one to the other without knowing it, and it confuses the conversation. So, for example, um, we can ask, take Stan Wallace at time T1, and then take Stan Wallace uh, at time T2 that's three weeks later than time T1. Now, what is it that makes Stan Wallace at time T2 literally the same person as the Stan Wallace at time T1? After all, his body has sloughed off cells and assimilated new cells. And if a table loses its parts and gains new parts, it really isn't strictly the same table. It, it, it may be a lookalike, but it's not the same. And so suppose someone said, well, I think that what grounds Stan and persons in general as being the same from one moment to a later moment is sameness of soul. And that's, that's the metaphysical ground of what makes us the same, even though we change over time. Now, another person might say, well, that can't be true because I don't have access to another person's soul to know if it's there. What I have to rely upon is the sameness of memory and personality traits. So that if the Stan Wallace at time T1 had certain memories and had certain values and, and motivations and a certain personality type, and later at time T2, he had those most of those memories and the ones that accumulated from T1 to T2, and his personality was largely the same and all the rest of it, then that's what makes Stan Wallace the same. Well, no, what you've done is you've moved from a metaphysical question to an epistemological question as to how we know Stan is the same. And I would say that what makes you the same is sameness of soul, but the way I know you're the same, 
would be similarity of memories and psychological traits and similarity of body. I don't think that's what makes you the same. But in the third person case, that's what allows me to know another person is highly likely to be the same person. So there's a case where mixing those up gives you the wrong answer to the metaphysical question. Mm -hmm. And it comes up all the time in discussions at very academic levels. Very careful thinkers often will make this error, as well as the man on the street just sharing his view of X, Y, Z. So just being aware of the distinction, I think, sometimes helps us identify where conversations can go off track. I think it comes up in parenting. We know that for our children, the right thing to do is to tell the truth. And so we try to help them develop an understanding of why they should desire to tell the truth that there are moral absolutes, and that's ultimately the reason why truth-telling is a good thing. Those moral absolutes are universals, which are metaphysical entities that exist in reality. But sometimes we can't go into all that with our children. Either they're too young to understand that, or we're in the moment, we have to tell them what they need to do, whether they want to or not, or think it's right or not. And so we say, trust me, or do it because I say so, or, or some other thing that doesn't actually give them a metaphysical grounding, but it gives them a reason to do it that they can understand. That isn't what makes the action right, the metaphysics. It just gives them reason to choose the right thing. It's epistemology. But what we don't want them to do is start thinking, well, that then is the ground, the reason, the metaphysics that you say it's right. Because then as they get older, they start to question that grounding, that metaphysical assumption that because my parents say it's right, it must be. And they might decide that, no, it isn't right. So ultimately, we want to get to the metaphysical grounding of why something is or is not actually right because of how it relates to that universal moral value that exists in reality. Again, the metaphysics. But sometimes that's a process. And uh, our four-year-old can't process all that, so they have to have epistemological groundings to do the right thing, even if they don't really yet have any sense of why that is in a deep metaphysical or ontological way. So that's one very practical way where understanding this distinction and keeping them clear can help us in our parenting, I think. That's a great illustration. Again, this comes up everywhere, so I'm sure our listeners can think of a multitude more, but just for examples. I have so enjoyed this conversation and I can already tell this is one I personally will come back to. So I hope you've enjoyed it as well. And I hope also that you are able to use this in your conversations, in your daily life, in your interactions with children, in your interactions with adults and elders, you know, everywhere you are, I hope you can notice these distinctions and begin to really attune yourself to the ways that this can make your conversations different. We're so grateful for you, and gentlemen, it's been a pleasure as always. Good to be with both of you. So good to be with you as well. That brings us to the end of this edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation in the pursuit of faith seeking understanding. Be sure to check out today's show notes at www.thinkingchristianly.org slash podcasts where you can find more information and the resources we discussed. Finally, please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars. Until next time, this is Jordan Plink, encouraging you to think Christianly.